Good evening, guys. Um, welcome to Live and Undrugged, episode six. Uh, as always, we're sponsored by Cannabis CBD, um, also Mr. James Jeffries. Um, and we are talking to Dr. Victoria Wilson Crane tonight about. Um, uh, sorry, um, about advanced grief recovery um, and her, her book. Um, Victoria, thank you for coming on. Um, thank you for having me. It's, it, it's, it's great to have someone of your esteem on. Um, I'd, I'd like to um, take you back to the start of your journey, really, and just explain a bit about who you are and how you ended up doing what you're doing. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a couple of stories, I suppose, are going to come out this evening. Um, the story about why I've got the title that I've got. Um, I'm an academic, not, not a medical doctor. Um, and my main research was looking at how we can help young people make decisions about their careers and what, where they might want to go in the future. And I suppose that um, that's the bulk of my sort of main job that I do now. But it's kind of woven quite neatly into what I've ended up doing as um, as some additional work now on the grief recovery um, because life changed a little bit for us um, in 2020 as it did for I know an awful lot of people but early in 2020 before um, Covid became such a big thing my um, young niece who was 22 was um, unwell with at the time we thought were just sort of flu-like symptoms sort of headaches and chills that kind of thing and um, she, she was ill for a couple of days and then she became um, sort of quite unresponsive into hospital and ended up in intensive care. And she died a couple of days later of um, encephalitis, which is um, inflammation of the brain that can come from a viral disease and then it sort of transmits up to the brain. Um, and, and that's what she had. And it was all very, very unexpected. Um, as I say, just sort of started off with what we thought was the flu or some sort of strange virus. It, it wasn't COVID um, that caused it. She was actually tested for that um, subsequent to her death. But yeah, life changed a little bit for our small family at that point, because um, I think we've been relatively low drama. Uh, and actually, I do say um, in stuff that I've written about this that I know an awful lot of shit can happen to people, but shit hadn't really happened to our family that much until that stage. So um, I lived um, and, st and still do uh, live about two hours drive away from my main family and where she was uh, where she was at the time when she was unwell. So um, when she was in intensive care, I did travel over and, and spent time with family. Um, but shortly after I arrived, it was becoming quite clear that there was nothing more that they could do with her at the hospital. Unfortunately, they tried tried everything they could. Um, so I think the first kind of dawning of realization for me that I was, as I've now described, um, on the kind of outer circle of grief was when I was asked to start to start the communications about her death and try to explain to people that she died. And I was suddenly thinking, hang on a minute, I, people should be telling me that. This is not me telling them that. What, what's going on here? Um, I just realized really quickly that whilst I was very, very close to my niece, um, there were quite a lot of people even closer to her than me and they were going to need some support during this time um, and I needed to, to support myself to try and support them as well. So 
things as I say swung into action a little bit she wanted to be an organ donor which was great and she'd actually badgered a few of our family who weren't on the register before that time to, to get themselves registered not long before she died completely unbeknownst to what was going to happen um, so if anybody's been in this situation where um, somebody decides to donate their organs or if uh, as a family you decide that's the right thing there's an awful lot of communication that needs to happen in those next few hours while they try and work out who's going to be the best recipients, who's going to be around to, um, to, to make best use of, of, of what we could for, from her. So during that time, her immediate family, and that was her four parents and her boyfriend um, and her brothers, were having those conversations with the hospital team. Um, and it was sort of down to the flow of me to start the communications with my parents. We've still got my parents are her grandparents um, and also her boyfriend's parents were around so we started to, to sort of talk about who we needed to speak to and who we, who we could talk to. Nobody prepares you for how you talk to anybody about sudden death. Um, that was probably the first challenge and one of the sort of early phone calls I made uh, which may sound a little bit odd but there, there was a rationale for it was to my, my sister so her mum and um, her husband's workplaces. But actually they were quite easy phone calls to make because they were all kind of in the know that something was going on. And I remember my sister saying to me, oh, you know, phoning these people could be a bit of a dry run for what it's gonna be like when you tell other people because they're hopefully going to be understanding and they, they sort of know what's going on. And as it turns out, it wasn't at all helpful because they did know what was happening. So the next round of people that we tried to communicate with, it was more a case of um, everyone assumed it was my parents who were in the 70s. So I tried to sort of fire a bit of a warning shot. I might send a text message or something and say I wanted to speak to you because I was, I was so clear that it was important to do this communication as a two-way thing rather than getting a message. So I send a message saying, oh, I've got a bit of sad family news. Is there a good time to speak to you? That kind of thing. Nobody had a clue that it was going to be about my niece. Um, and some of those re really early phone calls were just so challenging because I didn't have the words to use and they didn't have the words to use coming back to me either. Um, probably one of the most difficult calls that I made was to, um, we've only got a very small family, was to my cousin. And um, we knew she was abroad, um, but we knew she needed to know. And we also wanted to tell her because her mum, who's our aunt, um, in her late 80s was kind of all over Facebook at the time <laughs> we just thought we don't want her finding this out over social media so we did hatch quite an elaborate plan about how we could how we could let our auntie know um, but that was a really really difficult one and again to get that kind of call when you're thousands of miles away um, not really knowing what I was asking of her either and in the event she did travel home very very quickly to, to be with us and, and to support us. But I think that that kind of communication is probably the, the biggest lesson I've learned in this around a how to deliver that communication, but b what to do when you're receiving it because so many people just said I don't know what to say mm. or I don't know what to do and it can be very very difficult to to to, to know what to say and do, um, and that's really been the premise of of my book and I'll talk about that in a little while about how I came to do that. But um, there's a lot in the book about how you can support people who are, are in those very early stages of shock and grief. 
And again, if, if anybody listening to this is thinking, yeah, I, I wouldn't know what to say, or if you've been in that situation, as probably you have, um, it's very difficult to feel confident mm. about that. And no one wants to get prepared for this because no one wants it to happen, but sadly it might happen. So I think, yeah, communication is probably one of the really, really big takeaways from this that I never anticipated I would need to learn and, and, and develop communication skills around death and dying. Mm. But it's something that I've started to become really quite passionate about because I realise so few people really know confidently what to what to do and say. Yeah, um, I've, I've, I've got quite a bit of experience around personal grief. Um, you know, losing people and, you know, in, in unexpected ways and, 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 and violent ways. And you're right, you don't know what to say. Um, for me, my primary response is just to cry um, mm. because I never was that good with, uh, you know, getting out my emotions that way. Um, so for me, my, f f you know, fight or flight response is just, to cry and I, I, you know, I don't know what to say um, and I don't even remember what other people have said to me to try and, and, and comfort me mm -hmm. because it just, it, 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 it's kind of, you kind of glazed over and, you know, shock sets in and you can kind of hear, but, but, but you can't. So how do you deal with somebody that's, that's kind of unresponsive? Yeah, you can you can sort of feel that sense of um, I, I certainly from my experience felt like I was in a bit of a fog. You're going around in a bit of a daze, aren't you, with that, at that point? Um, I think if, if someone is unresponsive and actually um, I think I experienced this with with a, an older male member of my family who just didn't have the words to, to say and didn't have the words to talk about it. Um, and I've, I've alluded to that in my writing about how to talk to somebody when the last thing they want to talk about is that um and i think it's just a, about simple things of being there listening um holding the hand touching or talking to them or hugging them if that feels appropriate and just letting them know that they don't really have to find the words um it's just about being there and, and, and being present as well in the moment and being anything at all that they say being very encouraging because I, I do believe, and I know it's not always culturally acceptable, but I do believe talking about things can help. Mm -hmm. So if you can possibly open that door, and that door sometimes gets opened by talking about other things beforehand. I've, um, I was a youth worker in previous days, and one of my stories is always about, um, we had a beautiful art room that we used to do art and crafts in with the young people. And yeah, I probably did the best arts and crafts out at the front desk with a piece of, piece of paper and a pair of scissors just chatting away to young people because if we said right we're going to do arts and crafts today they just kind of close down but trying to actually have conversations with people when you're trying to do an activity is probably one of the best ways to get get people involved so one thing I did with um with a person in my field of view was um made sure we just got them engaged in doing some stuff so one of the reasons why one of my relatives was feeling very sad about um feel like they were sort of left out of the the arrangements because they were again a bit like me in one of those kind of outer circles of grief I encouraged him to to have a think about what well, what can he do what is within his sphere of control what can he do for him or to actually feel like he's involved and part of it 
and we we gave him part of the service to to kind of um, look after for for my niece and he felt like he was involved then and then with that came some conversation and came some discussion but I think one of the phrases that um, I got from the many many books that I've read since this happened is about grief belonging to the griever and try and not impose what you think the person should be either doing or saying or behaving like it's such an individual experience that it's probably best not to try and have people fit into some kind of category of oh they're behaving like this or they're behaving like that just kind of go with whatever's happening if they're chatting great if they're not chatting that's okay and maybe try and encourage them through other ways and just give them loads and loads of support whenever they do open up yeah I don't think you know how, how people are going to react. Mm. I don't, you know, I don't think most people know how they're going to react to certain situations and stress. Um, yeah. You know, every, every situation for me has been different. And I suppose that's like it for sort of everybody else, even though there's probably a, a sort of a key line that, that, that you're set to. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just so unique and it's also quite changeable. Um, one thing I, I've learned is rather than asking questions like, how are you? Because that's an impossible question to answer, really, other than to say, I'm dreadful and I'm never going to get any better. I'm awful. Um, how is it for you this morning? Or how is it right now? Um, I've read other people have talked about you want, might want to develop your own kind of language within your family or your, your area, you know, and maybe give it, give it a number. Um, I'm a seven today or I'm an eight, or I'm a three. And whatever you decide those numbers mean just gives you a way of talking about it rather than having to say, I feel dreadful, I feel awful, um, because that's probably the starting point. And anything above that's a bit of a bonus. Um, <clears throat> and over to my sister and I, we, we came up with a code of um, kind of saying we were okay. And we put it in text messages and stuff and say, okay. And that kind of meant, you know, I'm not all right, but actually on a scale, it's livable with today you know it's okay today um and that was something again that helped us because and again being at, living at quite some distance you can't see people eye to eye it's quite difficult to try and get a sense of how people really are and it's probably much easier to shut down and not say how you are than actually express clearly how you are um even to someone that you're close to yeah i mean that like experiences that i've had with sort of ptsd and and depression and, and and things on that scale you know my own mental illness and, and addiction i you know i think sometimes it's when i say i'm okay i'm i'm really not okay and that's when i'm sort of at my worst mm -hmm. in my mind but i could be showing sort of a blank face um and i think that more people need to learn to be able to see those signs which is which is why i want to get people on on like you to be able to just educate uh, families on you know on this because it's not something that we we would know um no. by looking at someone or talking to someone i can you know, I can I can say that I'm fine and it'll come out nice and dandy and, you know, I can seem like I'm fine um, or I can seem like I'm quiet and, I'm, you know, I'm actually fine. But 
you know, you, you never do sort of know. Are there any sort of things that you can look for um, to be able to see if it's at a scale, you know, to, to yeah. see it? I mean, I, I think that response of I'm OK, I'm fine is is a very useful one for people when they don't want to talk to you, because if you say to somebody and we do it as a, you know, a, a question that doesn't need an answer, doesn't it? You're OK. Yeah. You know, and, and, and actually, I'm not looking for any other answer than yes, you're OK, because anything that, that's other than that means I've got some work to do or I've got some some help mm-hmm. to do. So I, I, I think probably somebody telling me consistently that they're OK is is a bit of a bit of a warning flag I think to help that is you can ask more of the right questions rather than asking a closed question of are you okay are you fine today um those more open questions um as I mentioned of you know trying to have some sort of scale or um you know how, how is it how is it feeling for you today to try and make it a bit more personal so there's some of that in um you know neurolinguistic programming about how you might use your words more effectively and I think some of those things can really, really help because it just reframes what it is you're asking. Um, so, yeah, definitely trying to avoid those sort of closed questions, which only give the person the option of, yeah, I'm fine. You know, yeah. come back with that because often they're probably, probably not. Um, I think something else I would just I would just look for is if you get a pattern of that, of I'm OK at certain times of the day or I'm OK at certain times of the week could be an indication that there's, there's stuff going on because... Yeah, I'm just shutting down. I don't want to talk to you. Um, and actually, probably the most challenging that that I've experienced is when people do shut down and, and move away, um, because it's hard to get a way in then back in. So one thing that people did really effectively with me, and actually I've learned to do this with the people as well, is that kind of regular check-ins, because then people are expecting you to um, to ask and respond. Because if you leave it a couple of days or if you leave it a couple of weeks, whatever your pattern of communication is with that person, it's harder than to pick it up, particularly if they have withdrawn. So I, I would suggest people trying to think about, OK, well, what, what is a what is a comfortable level of communication that I have with someone who I know is going through either a sudden bereavement or a sudden loss in that way? Um, and so that could be days, that could be weeks, depending on what your normal pattern is. But somebody did something really effective with me and it was just a very very regular text message um and because I knew to expect it and because I knew even if I'd pushed them away a bit they'd still come back the next day I could be honest with them um so it's that sort of level of consistency at a time when people can be all over the place and not be consistent at all themselves I suppose that the last thing with that is to just not um try and not get disappointed if you do get pushed away or if they choose you're not the right person to be sharing that with because sometimes you want to just be there for somebody but sometimes you're just not the right person for them so just accept um but keep your offer open and make sure that you are going to be there uh, whenever they're ready for you yeah i think i think that um a lot of the times that tra- um you know the experiences that i've had that the trauma response has been to push people away. Um, and it's not something that you mean to do. It's not something that you necessarily want to do. You might want somebody to come in and get close, but I think that um, it affects you in such a profound way that you you do, you just air this, mm. go away. Um, and... 
you know, I think I, you know, I, I, I struggle with that a lot, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in a social, you know, I, I, I'm a, a member of quite a large church. Um, I'm part of a, a, a prayer and ministry team. Um, and I'm really trying to work on my people skills and my um, skills in noticing, um, you, you know, responses from people and how to then respond to that. But, um, you know, I find myself ill-equipped and that's not an easy thing to do, especially in a a busy setting like a church on a Sunday morning. Um, And I I, I just find that really difficult. Um, Are there any sort of things that you can do to... Um, plan to speak um, you know I do apologise we seem to have lost there um, I will try and get Victoria back um, we seem to have lost connection there we go I'm so sorry. I think I lost you then. That's that's okay. Um, these things happen every now and again. Um, it's, it's it's something that you have to expect. You did you you, you froze. Um, yeah. No. What, what I was asking was, um, what can we do in a in a situation like um, being in a, a a sort of ministry role in a church, talking to people um, who clearly have problems um how can we respond better mm-hmm. yeah i think that's where sort of elements of the grief recovery method could could come into this because um it's not it can be used for people who are in immediate trauma but i've been finding it most effective with my clients who are um at perhaps a little bit of a later stage where they're kind of reflecting on their grief and they're trying to um yeah trying to help their own recovery from that one thing that it talks about is that um, the unresolved grief and the pain that we get from unresolved grief is actually cumulative. So unless we deal with it, something else happens and it's a bit like a pressure cooker and you put something else in and put something else in. And then unless you actually resolve it, um, something's going to blow at some stage. So the grief recovery method teaches you to find ways to, um, we use a phrase called complete on relationships that have been incomplete and that that could be through death and and bereavement but it could also be through other losses um because grief can come about from one of they say up to 40 different types of loss in our lives not necessarily loss of a person through through death so if you're dealing with people who are in your in your church and if they've either dealing with something that that it's, it's traumatic and it's current and it's and it's live um the method could come into into play but it can actually be a useful way to just open a dialogue about death and dying that we just don't do yeah because in our in our um society we just we just don't really have a language for it we don't make the space for it and then we we need to find a language around it a time when we're at our most stressed and at our you know most difficult so that's why it's quite hard to think then you know you're going to go away and read a load of books or take a course or do something because it's just not going to happen um, so there probably are elements of the grief recovery method that 
without even going through the course, you could learn from, from the handbook that would help you start off a dialogue with your um, the people within your community to help them think about how, they, um, how they've dealt with grief in the past and then perhaps how that has coloured how they're dealing with grief in the future. Because one of my, um, I felt like one of my role models for, for grief was um, a death that I experienced in my teenage years. And it was, it was pretty challenging the way that their nearest and dearest dealt with that because it was all about lots and lots of tears, um, lots of language around, we will never get, get over this. And I, I don't actually believe you do get over it. I think you grow around it. I don't think you get over it anyway. But it was all this sense of, this is, I'm, I'm never going to be, never going to be better. There's, there's never going to be any good to come from anything as a result of this. And I, I felt when I lost my niece that I felt a lot like that, to be fair. But I've also got my own family and I'm relatively young. Um, do I just pack it all in now then? Because we might as well, if that's what we're going to say, if we, can, if we can't find a way through this. So there may be things within your community's experience that has actually taught them how to deal with with grief in ways that aren't that helpful and, and much of what society teaches us about death and dying and how we deal with grief is not helpful and not very practical so some of the myths that we talk about which is around you know um, replace the loss so that sort of works with a teenage relationship that if you you know you fall in love with somebody and then you split up and then oh we'll find somebody else plenty more fish in the sea all the things like that how does that work when it's your granddad who, who dies? Um, replace the loss sort of works with pets. I don't really believe you can replace uh, a dog that you've loved. Um, you can get a different dog or another dog or a cat and it will be a different relationship, but you don't really replace that loss. But we teach ourselves and society teaches us that's one of the ways that we do that. And we do that with children. You know, if goldfish die, you might buy them another goldfish because that's what you do. So there's lots of things within society that I think have taught us ways that we could deal with loss, but it's often very practical, um, intellectual ways of dealing with loss. So a practical solution if you've lost and then is, is get something else or a practical solution around um, keeping busy, for example, because that keeps your mind off it. So you haven't got to think about it, but they're not really long term strategies that can help you heal this, which is more of the emotional loss that you're feeling when, when somebody dies. So I, I would suggest, um, and I'd be happy to talk to your group if you'd be willing, to, you know, to start to just open up that dialogue at a time when people don't necessarily need that help, because then when they do, you've got tools in your toolbox to be able to, to cope with it, because I think one of the challenges we've got is we, we're not taught the right tools, we're certainly not taught the right tools at school to be able to deal with the kind of things we're going to face as adults and death and dying is is probably one of those yeah yeah i mean I, I, you know a, a lot of my fo uh, followers uh, will you know they, they've all sort of lived this this the, the same sort of um sort of life as me and and, and uh, done the same things in in recovery Mm -hmm. And you know, the thing about addiction and, and trauma and grief and loss and uh, you, you know shame and 
uh, around behavior and stuff like that is it's it's the fact that it's a disconnection and mm. it's disconnection from yourself it's a disconnection from your family it's a disconnection from community it's disconnection from you know whatever your higher power may be whether you choose to call it god or you know um and i think uh you you know that that's the biggest problem of of an addict like me and the fact that we deal with or dealt at one time or another with grief by self-medicating or these other learned behaviors like uh self-sabotage or you, you know the, the, these were our trauma responses that, that we that we went to i, I like to I, I like to put it akin to as like a, a mobile phone or a, a personal computer. And, you know, when you get it, it's got its factory settings and it runs how it's supposed to run. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you add your programs or you add your apps and, you know, you get it how you want it. But then, you know, you, you can get two things that, you, you know, conflict things you know like grief and alcohol they really don't go together they conflict and they, they make this thing not work properly so then you have to reset back to factory settings mm -hmm. um and to do that for me that's a 12-step program yeah. um you know um you know, I suppose there are lots of different ways for, for, for other people, but for me personally, that, that's that you know that that's a twelve-step program um, based around AA. But um, you you know, you have to kind of unlearn these mm -hmm. coping mechanisms. And I, you know, I've spoken to people like Jason Edwards, who's a a, a hostage mediator. Um, you know, and uh, he 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 does these negotiations, and you know he's given me some sort of ideas on you know how to sort of deal with things. But grief is always the one that puts me set, resets me back, mm -hmm. puts me back because I've never found the right way to deal with it. Yeah. Um, you know, even without chemicals, I've never found the right way to deal with it. Like I say, for me, it's just cry. Mm -hmm. um you know and i know that i i need to build a coping strategy to be able to do that to be able to then take that to other people and and, and, and get better in my own life and 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 you know resolution with conflicts and things like that with, within the sort of community but um you know, I, you spoke about NLP. Mm -hmm. um, so is it as much, not just as much about as what you say, but how you say it and the tone that you use? I think, I think some of, some of grief, grief support is that that isn't the basis of the grief recovery method. Actually, it's, there's a series of action steps. It's interesting you talk about the kind of AA approach and then, um, it's, it's similarly aligned in that there are a number of very deliberate things you can do that can help you with, with grief. And I think that's where it can be um, set apart from talking therapies, because there's nothing wrong with counselling, there's nothing wrong with those types of things. But I actually found for me, um, 
all I was doing was talking about it and telling the story over and over again and not really getting anywhere with that. Um, and I have found, I've had counselling before for other things and found it useful for that. But actually for this, um, it just wasn't that helpful because um, I had somebody who um, was very sort of well-meaning and, and very qualified, but their role was just to listen to me. And I wanted somebody who could tell me some stuff to do to make myself feel better. Um, and that wasn't what that person's role was at this time. And that was, it was frustrating and, and challenging. And that was how I found the method really, because um, again, going back to kind of the academic in me, I wanted something that was proven that was gonna work. And I know we can't prove it's definitely gonna work for everybody, but there is an evidence base behind this method that takes you through a number of steps. You first of all, um, explore what you already know about grief. And a lot of that is, as I alluded to, things that probably aren't very helpful. And then you explore what you've done during grief. So as you've said, possibly medication, possibly self-medicating with uh, legal drugs or illegal drugs or whichever way you want to take that. Um, there's, there's other ways that people do that too. And I think one of mine was around work because when this all happened, um, we were going through an extremely busy time with, with COVID, with work. And I just had the opportunity to totally bury my head and get on with stuff and appear fine. And all those words that you talked about, about being okay and stuff like that was just so easy to trot out. Um, so one of the um, sort of alerts for me was just, I just, this is not, this is not gonna be viable long-term to keep going at this kind of pace. I need to do something about it. Um, so you do that. And then you look at your kind of totality of grief. You look at all the different losses that you've had in your life. And that could be um, loss of really tangible things and deaths. It could be uh, loss of your home, if that's happened to you. Um, it could be um, more intangible things. So somebody who I trained with, um, she was a fertility coach and she just said, I spend most of my days dealing with people who are gonna, not gonna have that dream that, that they want. There can be other sort of losses of hopes and dreams of things that something has happened that it means something just isn't going to happen in your life anymore. So it could be um, the breakdown of a relationship that means you're not going to see certain people any longer in your life. And that that could be a loss. There's also really positive losses. So even um, an example I've had with a client was they've moved jobs because they had a promotion but they were actually experiencing a significant amount of grief that went with that because the usual patterns of behaviour had just stopped. And that was an active choice they'd made to change jobs and do something different, but it had really quite had an effect on them on top of a load of other experiences they'd had with grief. Um, so yeah, you, you plot all your experiences um, that you've had and you, you realise, and, and we never do this in any other way, um, you realise kind of the totality of grief that you might have experienced and things that you'd not even thought of as grief and then you pick one of those relationships and it's about as I said before coming to this kind of completeness on that relationship which is about things that you didn't say or do at the time things that you wish you said or did at the time and then you go through an exercise to try and complete that loss and you do that with um with a specialist like me so you wouldn't necessarily even if the person is still alive so I've had clients who um have wanted to repair relationships with people who are still living they don't need to know anything about this it's about you and your your heart and your emotions dealing with that rather than telling them um, what you want to tell them but that's really it and I've so far um, 
my experience myself and then with the clients that I've had people just have said they just feel better as a result of going through this process and that's all I can ask really recovery in our sense of the word is about feeling better it's not necessarily um as I say because I don't think you get over some elements of grief I don't think it's possible I think you have to just find ways to learn to live, live around it um so recovery isn't about um total factory reset I wouldn't say but it is about finding a way through the pain of the loss that you've had um and I think for, for me it, it was the fact that it was there is you know some research that's gone into it and my own research now tells me from my clients that I've had that it does actually work and it was a loss beyond my niece that I actually did my first completion with because I felt like that was a death that happened quite soon after my niece and I felt they hadn't had any airtime at all because all I'd been focused on was what had happened with my niece um and the, the day after I'd done the completion on that I just woke up and felt better than I'd felt for months so I do think it works yeah I think the closest that I've I've got to that is making um you know whilst working the steps and um sort of looking at people who to make amends with um mm. where to do so you know except where to do so would injure them or others yeah um, making amends where we can but you have to remember about making amends whether it's going to do injury to yourself as well mm -hmm. um you know i think a lot of people forget that um you know making lists about um these things that we've done that have not just caused grief to other people, but obviously it it it, it causes a certain amount of grief to us yeah. because you, you know because we carry it in a certain way. Um, shame, disappointment, all mm -hmm. these things um, can sort of mimic grief. I think, or yeah. it does in me. I, I can't say that it, you know mm. uh, it's a fact that it it does everybody, but in me. You know, disappointment and, and hurt and, and you know, uh, loss, which I've experienced a lot of, yeah. um, you know, affected me in such a profound way that I kind of grieved for who I was or for what I'd lost. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my first trauma, my first bit of grief was finding out that I was adopted and I love my parents very, very much. Um, you know, it's not always been easy mm. um, over the past few years. I was told on my, my eighth birthday. And I think that that loss of identity for me caused that grief. Um, and it is like losing someone that, 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 that you love mm. when you lose yourself. Um, mm -hmm. So, you, you know, so profoundly that you, you don't know who you are, especially when you're still growing as well. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with, I, I presume you would deal with children differently to adults. Yeah. Um, I, I know people that, that have had uh, a lot of grief, um, you know, and, and their, you know, their children have gone through a lot of grief. Um, how, how do we tackle that? Yeah, that's something that I, I'm still learning about, if I'm honest. There is a companion programme to the grief recovery methods. And it's actually a programme that, um, that we deliver with teachers, youth workers, parents, um, other people who want to help children with, with their loss. Um, 
so it's it's definitely about doing things at an age appropriate um, approach but it's also um, a lot of the kind of underpinnings of it are around real kind of honesty and again a bit of care with language because I think one of the tendencies we can have with young children particularly is to speak in euphemisms and to not really explain what we're talking about so you know you've 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 lost your you've lost your dad which could be awful um I lost my shoe last week but I found my shoe again so you know there's already a concept of what that word lost means and if we try and use that with children it can create even more confusion mm. so um the, there are sort of ages and stages that that we can go through um to be sort of a bit more confident and obviously it's all very individual as well because children aren't clones either you know you've got to be trying try and be aware of who that child is and, and what they're capable of understanding but most of the um most of the work talks about a real level of honesty with children and part of that is also setting them up for how they might deal with future losses because unfortunately it's probably not going to be the last time they're going to experience it so rather than trying to sugarcoat things and trying to present things in ways that we think will make it easier for them that will just make it harder in the long run so yeah it's definitely something I'm still learning about and it's it's a, a program that I'm hoping to be able to deliver um hopefully the later part of this year because that that's what I'd like to do really going back to my kind of teaching background of um presenting that program to either parents or um, or other adults that are in, important in children's lives but again children that um that have either been through the care system or children um that have had other challenges in, in their lives to add grief with that it's just another one of those things that that could could mean um you know d developmental delay or, or any of those sorts of things that, that we want to try and protect children from as much as we can so yeah very very keen on on um on working towards that because i think it could be really really valuable and if we can help our young people whether they've experienced a loss or not to be a bit better about talking about this than we are um we might end up with less of a need for support services when they get to get to our sort of age because the kind of um the baseline will have been set a little bit more um, than, it, than it has now. So, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm particularly keen about trying to make sure we, we can do that for something I'm still learning about as well. So what about the um, uh, loss through violence? Um, that, 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 that's one that um, is very prevalent in my life. And the people around me but also I have a lot of friends that have um, lost people to violence and suicide and I think it's a lot harsher um, to an extent than um, you know than, 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 than other loss um, how do we begin to sort of deal with that yeah obviously incredibly challenging situation and it's it's another one of those sort of sudden sudden deaths but for me um, well, one thing we do say is we try and not compare losses because it, it doesn't really matter you know you're, I, you're I'm not going to say to you that that's that's a worse experience than I had or you're not going to say to me um, but it just feels um, probably more challenging in terms of the layers of of complexity that you've got to try and um, uncover with that because if somebody I suppose if somebody has died, it's been 
it's been through something medical and they've had an illness and they've died from that illness, however quickly that took hold. Um, you don't have in the same way as with, with kind of violence, that other layer of possible anger or, um, you know, I suppose at the very weakest disappointment, but at the, at the strongest, you know, much more of a sense of injustice about what has happened to, to that individual. Um, I think around how to try and support those people, it's just recognising that there's just going to be a number of different layers to that. And this is not just about simply an emotional saying goodbye or letting go to that, that person. It's about also dealing with that big range of emotions that when I mean, you touched upon talking about the AA stuff, but there's going to be, let's say, anger, uh, disappointment, betrayal, confusion, um, seeking answers because thinking back to um, you know deaths like uh, where people have died as part of um, you know organized events and stuff like that people want someone to blame usually because they believe that might help them um, understand what had happened or feel a bit better about what had happened so I think it's about being prepared to unpack those different things at different stages and probably getting different experts that are going to be able to deal with that because it's not just about the grief it's about all those other sentiments that people might be feeling at various stages um, and that's probably a good one to mention about the stages of grief because if you have you heard people talk about stages of grief or have you your audience um, heard about those I think it might be a good idea to go over it yeah so it's probably one of one of the biggest myths and things that I um better understood in the last year or so because um there was a researcher, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who talked about um, stages of, of death and dying. And it was it was a very useful way of helping people who knew they were going to die to know the sort of stage they go through. And you might have heard people talk about um, bargaining and acceptance and those kind of things and anger. And it it was misunderstood. And, and the, the way that I've got hold of this, I think it was misunderstood by a journalist who then twisted it a bit probably not through any malice through their misunderstanding that it could be applied to grief so you then have a lot of people who are actually grieving thinking that I'm going to go through this in some sort of linear fashion you know I'm, I'm going to go through the anger stage I'm going to go through the bargaining stage and that was never what it was designed for um, and I think that has probably been one of the most useful revelations that I've had but probably one of the most shocking because I think people around me expected me to go through my grief in a very linear fashion. So they'd be surprised when it was actually much more messy than, than that. Um, and I think that's a, that's a useful kind of takeaway again for, for any, anyone listening that grief really isn't linear and doesn't follow a pattern. And because of the different things that can lead to grief, as we said, you know, if it has been through a particularly traumatic event or through violence, there's going to be so many other things to consider. Um, you're really not going to get anywhere if you're starting to think, oh, well, I'm going to have three weeks of this and four weeks of that. And then the, the other sort of myth around getting through the first year is probably the hardest, because in my experience, that wasn't true at all. A, a switch doesn't flick if you get through the first year and suddenly you feel better. Um, and that actually, I think, puts a bit of pressure on our grievers and makes you think that either you're doing better than you, you should be, or even worse, you're doing worse than you should be, because you should be further on with this than you are now. Um, and that can be one of the real misconceptions around um, how people are, are behaving beyond 
beyond the death, you know, well, it's been a few months now, surely, surely you're going to be feeling, feeling back to your normal self. I don't think people ever do feel back to the normal self. But I think if you are um, faced with that situation where you have got people who've particularly been facing grief um, or shock and grief through a really traumatic or violent incident, it will be about trying to break that down and think about okay, which bit of this is grief and actually which bit of it is more to do with what led to the death in the first place and whether I can get some more help from, from somebody who's experienced with, with that, certainly. Yeah, I think... I, I think the inherent need that that we have when we lose someone like that is to want these questions that we have answered and that's not always possible um in fact i would say that's mostly not possible um because we don't know why people do these things um you know, sometimes there's a, a there's a reason that's that's been twisted out of all context, but other times it's just you, you know the situation is that it's happened, it's a massive shock, and you may never find out the reason. Mm. Um, you know, especially when it's things like um, you know. Uh, murder and, and and suicide because you know especially in suicide when 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 people don't leave a note um and you you, you know you don't know how somebody's feeling and you know you want to say oh well you know i wish they'd have come and spoken to me mm-hmm. or i wish they'd have done this i wish they'd have done that uh, and you, you know life is full of i wish or what if um and I think we have to come to terms with that as much as we have to con- come to terms with the loss mm-hmm. um, because it's just not, you know, it's, it's just not always possible. We don't know why people snap. We don't know why these things happen. You know, I've, I've, I've lost several people over the past year um, to suicide, um, you know, uh, especially on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um and you think you would know what to do if, if you know, they, they rang you. And I've, I've had a couple of people ring me that have been in some of you know, depression and stuff like that. And you, you can always say what's from your own experience, but I'm not a medical professional. I only know how I've dealt with it in my way. And for all I know, my way might be, I won't say the wrong way, but not the right way. Um, and I, I, I think that you, you know, if you, if you're going to be in a, put yourself in a situation where you're going to be advising people and you're going to be talking to people or you're going to be teaching, um, I, I think you need to be able to have that sit level on you um because i i think if you don't it's going to tear you apart every time i i I think that you have to have a certain um a certain way of thinking um, Mm -hmm. before you can at least even think about other people's pain Mm -hmm. um you know 
I like to be able to help people and I like to be able to tell people how I've changed my life and how I've done this and how I've done that. Um, and I like to get people on that say how they've done it. So it gives a, you know, a bigger picture. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what would you say to somebody that, that might be watching now that is really sort of grieving and maybe not searching for a, 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 a you know, a, an answer right here and right now, but, you know, they're, they're searching for a, a, a way to be able to tip the balance back to them being able to step forward into recovery. What, what would you say to them? Yeah, function. I think, um, I think first of all, probably to recognise that you're really, really not alone. And there's, there's lots of us out there. And there are the, the benefit of that is that there are a lot of people out there that you could talk to if you, if you want to talk to somebody. I would, if you haven't considered talking to anybody before, I would, I would really think about why has that been the case? Because certainly from my own experience and people within my field of view, talking to people has helped because it helps you a realize you aren't alone and b there are some things that other people are doing that maybe you've not even thought of that could could be really helpful for you if you are sitting there thinking oh but i don't even know where to start with any of that um i'm sure there are things we can put in in your show notes about people to contact um who would be a, a good starting point and they might not be the end point but could just be a starting point that can help you and to refer you on to somebody who you might want to speak to um, and I think probably it's as simple as that, really. If you are at that point of thinking, I really want to do something about this, I'm confident there are things that you can do. So I would try and seek out that help if you can. And some of those sort of more um, immediate phone lines that people can call, you know, people like Samaritans and people like that will be open to, to listening to you in this state at the moment, even if you're not ready to talk about the full experience that you've had around grief but they would be somebody that you could ring immediately this evening to speak to. And then beyond that, there are people like me who can take you through um, the kind of process that I've been talking about. Or similarly, there may be people within your community who've got that kind of skill who can, who can help you with that too in that experience. Yeah, yeah. I would, um, I would, I would uh, you know, suggest anybody that's watching that, that is uh, really struggling and if we've spoken about anything tonight that has you, you know that has affected you don't sit on it no um speak to someone about it um you know uh, drop a message under here um drop a message to the page or drop a message to me um and if there's anything that you you know or any sort of burning questions that you've got i'm sure i can pass them on um to to, to victoria um just just before before we finish uh, tell me about the book and um you know uh, some of the reasons behind it and where we can get it yeah thank you um so I think you started off by asking me about my, my journey on this. And, and one of the things that I did to try and help me feel better was to write about what had happened to me um, and happened to our family um, during the loss of my niece. So um, 
about sort of six or eight months after she died, I started to write uh, a book which I've now called 16 Days. And that just alludes to the number of days between her death and her funeral, because some unusual things happened during that time. And we did some, some things I wasn't expecting to have to do as a family. Um, and it just really helped me to try and write it all down and get it out of my system. And it started off really just as that, as a bit of a memoir. And then because at the time I was also reading as many books as I possibly could to try and help me with this, um, I started to put little bits of advice at the end of each chapter, which could be helpful to other people if you are dealing with people who are in shock or who, who are grieving in the same similar situation to, to we were. The reason I wanted to write a book was because when I did an Amazon search for um, aunties and help for aunties when they've lost their niece or you know, search strings like that, I basically found a lined journal that I could write in and that was it. There was no book out there to try and help people who I've since described as being on this kind of outer circle of grief that to me I was as close to my niece as I possibly could be but there were people who were closer than me and I needed to try and support them but I was also looking for support myself so I've talked about it if you can picture um, like an onion and, and, and layers um, there were people very very close to the centre of that onion I was a little bit further out and some of the people that supported me were even further out on the kind of brown brown layer of an onion um, and I've just found that really really helpful because the obvious thing you know as a family you all sort of hopefully stick together and support each other but actually we all needed different types of support at that time um, and continuing as the, as the kind of months went on. So I've written the book it's just got a number of chapters which aren't in any logical order really it's just my kind of thoughts about what happened in those days and it just takes people through um, the preparations that we had for a funeral that we were never planning to to have um, and what happened during those during those times so it is on um, it's on Amazon um, on Kindle as well as uh, printed copy or if we share my website as well I'd be happy to send out a signed copy to to anybody um, I have managed to sell quite a number of copies and people have come back for more which has been quite nice people have read it and said actually somebody else needs to see this or I need to pass it on. So that's been a little bit of a surprise to me. This was a, a totally um, uh, activity just for me to be involved in to write this book and to get it out there. But to, to understand that actually this story is helping other people is, is quite, quite sort of heartwarming to me as well. And then on my website as well, there is more information about the grief recovery method if anyone wants to talk about that in any detail too. Yeah. Um... I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, a, a, a few of my uh, my followers will um, come your way. I know there are people out there that, you know, watch my stuff that uh, have really struggled or are really struggling at the moment with um, grief and uh, loss and things like that, so, which is the exact reason I wanted to get you on. Um, you know, and I want to thank you for, for coming on and, and being so open and honest, um, you know, about your journey and, and, and for all your wise advice. Um, I'm going to uh, sh sh uh, stop streaming in a second and then we'll have a quick chat um, just to debrief. But um, to everybody that tunes in uh, every week, um, to those that, that, uh, tune in 
uh, live and to those that, that tune in later on catch up um, to all my followers and fans. As always, um, you're as much part of this as uh, my guests and as I am, and I, I, I couldn't and I wouldn't do it without you. Um, you know, I, I, I love you guys and I, I genuinely love um, interacting with you. Um, so thank you as always for, for tuning in. Um, I don't know when the next one's going to be. Um, I will let you know. <laughs> I do sometimes say when the next one's going to be and it doesn't happen. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to put anything out there until I genuinely do know. Um, although I believe it could be next Monday, um, but I'm not going to tell you who. Um, and with that, I want to say good night and thank you for tuning in. Cheers, guys.